everything's bigger in Texas, including climate change. That's why Houston is leading the energy transition. Here in H-Town, the fourth largest city in the United States, entrepreneurs from across Texas and around the world are gathering to work with titans of industry to build the technology that will reduce emissions and power a low carbon future. We sit down with those change makers and wildcatters who are solving the toughest energy challenges. With trillions of dollars on the line, we dig into how Houston will bring technology to market on a massive scale. Join us as we talk with the leaders of the energy capital of the world as they show us how the energy transition gets done. I'm Laura Cottingham, and this is the Energy Technology Podcast. And I'm Jason Etier. Let's jump in. So uh, welcome back to the show. We're here today with Arshin Alam. Arshin is the founder and CEO of GoLeaf. Uh, she has a bachelor's degree in material science and engineering and an MBA from Fuqua, the business school at Duke, my alma mater. Uh, she previously founded uh, CNanos, a company focused on developing water purification systems with nanotech. Uh, she also developed an interest in graphene materials that eventually led to the launch of GoLeaf. Arshin is responsible for the development and commercialization of the technology, as well as its strategic vision and execution. Arshin was named Forbes 30 Under 30 list for 2019 in the energy category for her graphene-related work, and she's been recognized locally in various publications through awards, uh, such as the Triangle Business Journal, Women's uh, in Business 40 Under 40 list, and she was awarded a Department of Energy grant to further develop an automated scale-up protocol for GoLeaf's proprietary graphene production process and further develop uh, the graphene-based products. Um, I take it you're an expert in carbon and graphene. So please tell us more <laughs> how you got into this. Sure. So when I was applying to college, mm -hmm. um, something that was really my impetus in choosing what my major was going to be was that growing up, my parents did a really good job. So me and my sisters were all born in Canada, but my parents did a good job taking us back home to their countries, mm -hmm. India and Pakistan. And we got to see firsthand the lack of access to basic resources mm. like water and energy. So when I was applying to college and looking at these majors, I was trying to see what was a major that I could do that could maybe enable me to develop a technology to alleviate some of these issues. Mainly, my focus was developing low-cost water filtration solutions. So I spent my four years of undergrad working on a carbon nanotechnology mm. And upon graduation, I actually end up patenting that carbon nanomaterial and moving to India for several months to try to commercialize that and work with some NGOs or work with the government to get them into villages. Um, but it turns out it's very difficult to do business <laughs> in India. And so my wide-eyed 21-year-old mm -hmm. self had a reality check very quickly. But the technology was really good and we were able to sell it to restaurants, hotels, schools um, as their water filtration systems. Mm -hmm. But I also realized during that process that these filters worked great for river water or groundwater, but not for salt water. And with most of the earth's water in the oceans, mm -hmm. we really needed a desalination solution. So I started reading about different technologies that were out there, and I came upon this paper that MIT published that was claiming some wonder material called graphene was going to revolutionize the desalination mm -hmm. world. Um, but their technology never made it out of the lab, and it was because to produce this nanomaterial called graphene, which is nothing but single layer or several layers of carbon, 
it was extremely expensive and very difficult to do at scale. But graphene being nothing but carbon and having worked in the carbon nano world for several years now, I figured there had to be a better Hmm. way to produce it. So I kind of dove back into the world of research. Fast forward several years of R&D later, my team developed a process to extract graphene oxide from virtually any carbon waste stream. And it's a chemical process, so we can apply it to not just starting material, whether it's trees, grass, hay, or landfill waste. We can also modify our chemical process based on the end-use application. So there's many uses for graphene, one of which was desalination. But another one was energy storage, Mm -hmm. which was another passion of mine, was getting access to energy. Um, So that's when we kind of pivoted from being a raw material like graphene or carbon nanomaterial producer to a product, developing a product, which was the graphene-based supercapacitor. And that's what we've been focused on for a couple of years Mm -hmm. now. That and the desalination membrane is both products we're working on. Yeah, So I'm I'm very interested in the, the chemistry I I did mechanical engineering, so I actually don't know that much about materials, sure. but I know a little bit. Um, and you said uh, carbon monoxide, which is different from carbon dioxide and monoxide. Um, and, and I assume there, there's something actually going on in this structure. So tell me a little more about what, what it is. So the difference between graphene and graphene oxide yeah. is graphene oxide has these um, OH functional groups. Oh, okay. And what that does is two things. One, it makes the graphene material water soluble Hmm. so if you have graphene even though it's extremely strong extremely conductive transparent all that stuff if it's not soluble in any media you can't actually mix it into anything to put into a product Mm. it's like oil it just kind of sticks to itself exactly so we wanted to make the water soluble form of it so that we can mix it into solutions like just off on a tangent a paint company Mm -hmm. approached us and they were trying to make a more durable paint that was also happened to be antimicrobial. So they got samples of our graphene, they worked on the formulation, and they were able to make a longer lasting paint. You can't do that if it's graphene because mm-hmm. you can't mix it in anything. So one is oxide group make it water soluble. So the functional groups, you can actually attach things to them. For example, you can make mm-hmm. like boron doped or nitrogen doped graphene for battery applications if you wanted to get n-type and p-type graphene and, and is um is like putting these oxide groups the only way to dope graphene or are there other techniques or is this the one that like you're an expert in um that's the one that we're an expert in you have to have functional groups in order to do mm. doping and what's cool about our process is the most graphene producers they will produce the graphene and then they will artificially add these oxide Mm. groups Mm. and that can really mess with the structure of the graphene what we do is we directly produce from the carbon waste stream we produce graphene oxide we don't do graphene Uh, and then change it to graphene oxide and and remind me the quirky thing about graphene is graphene is is flat like it's laminar ish Mm -hmm. as opposed to a nanotube which is circular ish yes exactly (laughs) and and i guess if uh if you're trying to uh dope it after the fact, you're kind of going to make it not flat or, yes. or you'll mess around with that structure. And that's what you mean by the the, the structural challenges. And mm-hmm. because you insert it in process, it's I guess it's more natural 
is the way the structure comes out and mm-hmm. more robust. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Got it. And to clarify, we do not have any interest in making single layer graphene because mm-hmm. the product applications we're working on do not require that. Mm. So we make three to five layer graphene oxide. Oh, okay. And what's... um. I guess what's the difference because I don't know. Sure. So making pristine graphene, it remains extremely difficult to Mm -hmm. do and very expensive. You can't really do it at scale. And again, we can't mix it in anything. So we're just not interested in in Mm. working with um, pristine graphene. Although there are really cool applications for it, like in LED screens and Mm. very thin, lightweight applications. And there's really cool people working on that. Got it. And and the, the doping allows you to give the graphene these different properties. And is the graphene in some ways a substrate for you to do other things? Mm-hmm. Got it. We we had a uh, another company on a while ago that was doing nanotubes, and it's 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 um it's amazing how it, it feels like it's an open palette to build things yeah. because it's it's really a new technology. I guess um uh how novel is kind of our manipulation of graphene? Is it um you said you got into it um, kind of earlier in your career. Like, how far are we in the development cycle of of this technology? Do you think? Sure. So the material itself, we have patented the process, mm-hmm. we've optimized it, and what we're doing now with our Department of Energy grant is working with some former NASA robotics engineers mm-hmm. to automate the entire thing to even further remove any human error that may mm-hmm. happen in the manufacturing process. That's on the material side. Now on the application side, we have developed a prototype of the SuperCap that's already, the prototype is not optimized. Mm. There's still a lot of optimization that can be done, but even in the non-optimized form of it, we're already outperforming the SuperCaps that are used in the Tesla Model S and the mm. Ford F-150 Lightning pickup truck. So we're really excited about that product and taking that further. Got it. And and what makes um, a graphene-based... Well, what is a regular SuperCap made out of? I don't even know. They're made out of... There are... They, they can be made out of um, activated carbon or mm. various forms of carbon nanomaterials. And some are made with graphene. But again, they're really... The materials are really expensive. So there's... It's kind of a double-edged sword that they may be using a really good material, but they can't use that much of it. So therefore, the super cap is not going to be that efficient. Like energy density or power density? Power density. Okay, power density. I guess that's what you want to cap is, is that yep. power density. Exactly. Um, and, and does that allow you to have like, a, I guess power density is driven by what? Voltage across the system? Is that what uh, you're usually optimizing around? The voltage and also the surface area of the material, how mm. much power can it hold and discharge quickly oh my gosh this brings me back to like high school physics <laughs> it's like <laughs> you calculate yeah the surface area okay interesting um and uh and so you're you're uh automating and developing uh, you're automating the process to get the graphene so that you can then build uh the ultra cap mm-hmm. um who ultimately buys ultra caps these days so our target markets are in three different areas. Mm. One is in grid storage because mm. there is already a lot of stationary battery storage. But when there's a surge in the grid, mm. batteries cannot supply that power fast enough. And that's when you have like um, load shedding mm. and those issues. So if you have a super cap to bridge that, then they can really complement batteries. Two is... Um, in uninterruptible power supplies. Mm-hmm. 
And then three is eventually we would like to be in electric trucks and buses mm. because especially buses, they stop and go a lot. And when you, you may be familiar with Tesla's, when you brake, there's the regenerative mm. braking happening. There is still a lot of energy loss when there, because batteries can't absorb it quickly enough. If you have a super cap in there, it can absorb all that energy. And then when you're ready to go from stop to a go, the super cap can provide that energy rather than pulling from the battery. So you can significantly improve the battery life of mm. EV batteries if you add a super cap component. Yeah, so, so let me walk through this because not everyone necessarily knows the difference between a battery and a, and a, a traditional lithium ion battery and a super mm -hmm. cap. So I think a battery, um, you have energy density, power density, we'll say, um, that's maybe um, they can uh, discharge like one times their rating, right? Mm -hmm. and, an, and a super cap or an ultra cap can do, uh, how much is it, a thousand times nowadays, yeah. right? Um, and then, uh, so a lot more power dense in terms mm -hmm. of very quickly able to, to discharge power. Batteries can be discharged and charged a couple thousand times. Super caps can be charged and recharged over a million times. Oh, wow. Okay. So they can last a lot longer. And if you're using them in conjunction with the battery, then it can, if you're not using the battery to go from stop to go each mm -hmm. time, you're really preserving that battery's life. So mm. instead of the few thousand times the battery can be charged and recharged, it can in increase that. Got it. So and you can use smaller batteries, which in EVs right now, the biggest thing is the weight of the battery is mm -hmm. what mm -hmm. decreases the car's efficiency. So if you can use a smaller, lighter battery because you're using a super cap, that's another huge benefit. Yeah, I guess um, a lot of times they're putting the big battery in to, to get those like three seconds of acceleration mm -hmm. or three seconds to zero to 60. Yeah. And if you can do that with an ultra cap instead, you can really reduce the, the weight on these yep. things. That makes a lot of sense. And um, same with any other yeah. kind of vehicle, like eventually airplanes, weight is a huge mm -hmm. thing. Buses, trucks, weight is always going to be an issue. Yeah. How? Do, okay, this is a, a dumb question for me. How do they... Um, how do they control it so they can pull the voltage or the power from from one source or another that's using a battery management system okay. which is not my expertise <laughs> but we were talking to a few people who can program it to do mm. just that okay and so they're, they're, they're I'm, I'm i want to know who those people are because mm. i'm very curious about how that works it seems like magic yeah they're in like very high demand it's so difficult to get a hold of yeah them. i'm sure because everyone's trying to figure out how to build these for for vehicles mm-hmm um, and and then when you were uh, talking about that that same application for um, for the grid, like that's the grid stabilization services, yes. and um, it, you, you see a similar effect there where you can um, partner with a battery system in that case. Exactly. Got it. Uh, does um, who who tends to who ends up buying the ultra cap? Like it, it's not the, I guess the grid operator itself, is it? Or who? Yeah. How do you, how do you get that to market? Um, it can be. We've talked to a few people. So there's a microgrid mm -hmm. company called Power Secure. They make their own microgrids. So they would be purchasers of the mm -hmm. supercab. But then there's other private entities who have like solar farms mm -hmm. and they have batteries and they want to have supercaps in there to bridge that gap. They would be another customer. We haven't talked to any municipalities or anything like that mm -hmm. yet. Yeah, I'm going to prove out the product a little bit further. Got it. But and and where do you think you need to be? I, I guess where where are you in the timeline of beginning to ship product? Because um, I know you're in the process of manufacturing, um, and I assume you've already built like full stacks, or no? Uh, 
They're still prototypes, so okay. they still need to be optimized, especially for size and mm. packaging. Because right now, for example, we can put, let's say, one gram per cell. Mm. But if we have the access to the right equipment with the right funding or mm. um, more funding, then we could put like 10 grams in a cell. Got it. So that's a huge improvement in performance and efficiency. So we're working on that piece of it. So now that our Department of Energy grant mm. is kind of coming to a close, we're going to be raising a seed round. Got it. I, I know a little bit more about like battery testing and scale up. They start with like little coin cells and then they build pouches. Yes. And then I guess they call them prismatic cells, which I think are a little mm -hmm. bigger. Like, do you have a similar analog for ultra exactly. caps? Is, is it exactly the same form factor or? Yeah. So we've made coin cells and we're looking for people to make pouch cells for us now. Okay. Is it similarly? So I remember with, um, the cells, like the big issue is with lithium, they tend to catch on fire when they're in the air. Do you need like a dry box? No. no. So the awesome thing about graphene is, or graphene oxide is, it does not have that fire risk. Mm, it's just because there's the re there's no there's no reactant. The rate at which our renewable energy generation is growing, mm. it's like having one of my slideshows, like twenty x, maybe even more the rate at which our capacity to store it mm. is growing. Mm -hmm. So we really, because batteries are not cutting it. So yeah. we really need super cap technology to complement mm -hmm. what batteries are trying to do. Yeah. And um, do you have a sense of, like in many ways, this is about making the batteries go further, I guess is the way to describe it. Mm -hmm. Like how is there an efficient, what, what's the efficiency improvement look like? Are you able to make those batteries like 50% better? In a great application, what, what's your sense? So in theory, there'll be a minimum of 20% improved mm. efficiency, but there's literature out there that says it could be 70, 80% improvement. Mm. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's pretty substantial. So really, mm -hmm. when you think about like lithium as a limiting factor in your ability to build these battery systems, you can, you can really make it go a lot further. I'll also mention that yeah. I was talking to one of my friends who works for, I don't, I'm, don't think I'm allowed to say the company, but they're like the largest ba EV battery producer mm. in the world. And he he went to Duke, so mm. that's how mm. I know him. But now he's working in Korea. Um, he constantly gets in touch with me to see where things are going. He's a technologist himself. And he personally is very interested in incorporating supercaps into cars and using them in conjunction with batteries. But the problem with the company that he's working at is they're so hyper-focused. It's not just their company. It's mm. even Ford and all these other companies. They're focused on making incremental improvements to yeah. batteries. Lithium-ion is not going to get much better. Yeah. So it's pretty frustrating that even the technologists at these companies know that making incremental improvements on the battery is not the way to go. It's just convincing the higher ups that you need to find a different solution mm -hmm. so that's one of the challenges that we face as a super cap producer is how do we get people to adopt them and realize you need to invest in this different technology rather than sticking to this great but age-old technology that's not going to get mm -hmm. that much better yeah. lithium ion i uh that's that's the classic like innovators dilemma yeah. right is um they're in many ways, the OEMs were slow to adopt EVs until Tesla came in and yep. and showed the way. Um, because it is challenging to take a risk on a whole new architecture. Mm -hmm. 
so you can't fault them for it. But that means that's why we have to have innovators like you to to kind of find a new path. It makes me wonder um, if there's a there's a path um, to bring the technology into like F1 where they have their mm-hmm. um, uh, I, I think their EV series. Yeah, and th- that's really the proving ground a lot of times for how these architectures um, get demonstrated and. And even within um, regular F1, right, they have different energy storage yeah. processes. So if anyone's listening who knows F1 people, <laughs> like, A, I'd like to see your car. But then, B, we got to get an ultra cap um, in, these, in these systems. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I guess uh, we'll transition a little bit. Um, tell us about, uh, your, you know, we, you told us a little bit about your journey of, of starting the company. Um, and, and it's clear you were... Um, you're doing a lot of the technology development and research yourself. How did you know that um, it was time for you to start the business? And how did you know you wanted to be the CEO? That's a great question. Yeah. So my senior year of college, um, pretty much every other brown kid like me mm. was taking the MCAT and applying to med <laughs> school. And even though I was an engineering major, I had taken all the pre-med requirements just because I figured that's probably what I'd end up doing. So I also signed up for the MCAT. I took the MCAT, did pretty good. Then I filled out my applications and the way med school worked back then, I'm Mm -hmm. assuming it still works the same way. You fill out all these primaries and you just blast it out to all these med schools and you're hoping to get a few secondaries back. So I send out 17 primaries, (laughs) end up getting 16 back. Uh And it's like, a lot more involved the secondary application. So that's when I finally took a pause because I was kind of on autopilot the whole way through. And I said, do I really want to be a doctor? And I have a lot of respect for doctors. And just taking the MCAT, I was like, gosh, kudos to doctors. Yep. <laughs> um, and I realized I didn't want to. And I really enjoyed research and I enjoyed technology. So I abandoned all 16 mm. secondaries. And that's when I decided after graduating, I'm going to try go to India and commercialize mm. this technology. And that was a huge learning experience for me to go there, realize I have no idea how to run a business. Technology commercialization is really hard. Doing it in another country mm. is a whole nother level of hard. And so I actually came back after those six months in India and worked in corporate as mm. a business analyst for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. So let me Make some money, one, and two, just get experience working in a corporate environment and learn from that. And after a few years of working there, that's when I decided to apply to Fuqua to Mm. go to business school and pick up that skill set so that I could be a more effective leader and CEO. Yeah, you're on a mission. I can tell. (laughs) You're going to get all the skills you need to to be successful this this next time around. Mm -hmm. And and how did you find business school um, in terms of giving you the skills you needed? It was amazing. So I toured a few different business schools. I only applied to Fuqua because mm. it was the only one that I saw had this huge social entrepreneurship push. Mm. There was so much talk about Team Fuqua, where, like everyone just wants to help each other and further their careers rather than a lot of other business schools were pretty cutthroat. Mm. Um, so I did an executive program. Mm. So I was still working full-time at my corporate job and about halfway through the program, my classmates and my professors, they were like, Rashi, we never hear you talk about your day job. You're like always talking about <laughs> Go Leaf and you have yeah. so much passion. Like you got to quit your day job yeah. and just go for it. So they're really the ones who encourage me to go all in on the startup. And they've even until say I've graduated like six, seven years ago, mm. six years ago, 
I can always reach back out to like my strategy professor, mm -hmm. my econ professor and just get their advice. I can reach out to my marketing classmates and run a deck by them. So I really appreciate all the, the classroom learning, but also the network that mm -hmm. I built at, mm -hmm. at Duke's business school. Yeah, do they have an incubator like do catch? Mm -hmm. Were you able to tap into those resources? Yes. Yeah, so they had a program for entrepreneurs mm -hmm. that I participated in, and then they have a Duke Innovation and Entrepreneurship organization mm -hmm. that you can attend all their events and do practice pitches and all that. And and most importantly, did you become a basketball fan? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> did you ever tent? <laughs> yes. It was amazing. <laughs> That's awesome. But Coach K did come and speak to nice. business school several times, which was so cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's such a legend. Mm -hmm. um, what did what did he speak on? Just leadership. Yeah. And his kind of day-to-day -day life. And he mentioned that around his house, like wherever he has like a chair that he sits in, he always has a notebook because mm. he gets ideas randomly and we like I that happens to me too and I'm like oh god and I type it in my phone it was cool to hear him he's mm. a little bit of an earlier generation he kind of does the same thing he just writes it down in his notebooks it's cool to think all these notebooks around coach mm. K's house where he's just writing notes yeah yeah my uh my wife has sticky notes all across the house and I think <laughs> it's the same thing it's funny how um just like the act of writing like just helps you organize your thoughts in mm -hmm. a way um yeah interesting yeah. That's good life lessons there. Um, let's see. So uh, uh, you you made the leap and were encouraged by your classmates um, to start the company. How were you in, in those early days? How were you paying the bills? Did you raise capital? And yeah. Um, so there was a few awards that we mm -hmm. won, like Duke had some pitch competitions that we participated in. And then the rest of it was family funding. Mm hmm. So I say my dad was my biggest and angel investor, <laughs> but also whenever we talk to people about our business, he's like, no, I'm her employee. So it's a fun dynamic. Yeah, no, it's good. It, 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 the, that kind of support is so necessary to sometimes get a, a business going. Mm -hmm. My um, my first year getting um, my last company going, Dynamo Micropower, um, my uh, mother said, okay. You got to get a real job at some point, but for this first year, we're going to sponsor you to get started and, mm -hmm. and you got to raise the money by the end of the year. And without that, I wouldn't have really taken that leap in entrepreneurship. Right. And so that, that kind of strong family support just is, is so invaluable. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, now that I'm I'm launching another business again, it's like that same family support is, is yeah. helpful uh, yeah. again. And those couple of years of yeah. working corporate under the belt also yeah. gave me some savings that yeah. I could use towards this. Yeah, good. Um, and, and so you, then you won some prize money um, and then you, you were able to get a grant. But that, mm -hmm. that wasn't SBIR. That was a different program. It's a different program. It's called Chain Reaction Innovation. Okay. And the DOE has a couple of these programs across their national labs. So I did the one based out of Argonne National Lab okay. in Illinois. How do people find those if they're like a, a prospective entrepreneur? I heard about it through word of mouth. Mm. Um it was actually a Dukey mm. who was now working for that program and someone connected me to her and she told me to apply. The application was coming up. So I actually applied once a couple of years ago, made it to the final round and then mm. didn't get it. So I applied again the following year and got it that year, which is very exciting. And yeah. it's a two year long program. And what did they look to fund? specifically they're funding deep tech mm -hmm. so deep tech that is pre 
So when I was applying, you had to not have raised um, more than $750,000. Mm. Apparently now they have changed that. So you can be a little bit further along. Mm. But their goal was to fund companies that are deep tech. They're hard. They're hard to raise money at the given stage, but they see a lot of potential in mm -hmm. the technology that's being developed. Mm -hmm. and, and you said specifically, like you're working on manufacturing uh, or, or scaling up kind of the production capabilities. Was that a requirement of the grant or was that really something you put forward in your application? Um, it's not a requirement. It's one of their possible avenues that they fund, like if you're trying to scale up, but a lot of it is just technology development. Mm -hmm. Oh, and it does have to have a climate mm -hmm. angle to it. Got it. Yeah. And, and and you said you're working with a team. How, tell me a little bit about the team and, and its sure. size. Sure. Yeah. So um, when I, after graduating, when I wanted to kind of get back into research, we actually partnered with a research institute in India called mm. the Indian Institute of Technology in Kanpur. Because I found a professor there who was working, who had been working on graphene for several years mm -hmm. and our research really aligned. So I continued to work with him through his retirement. And once he retired, I switched to the Indian Institute of Technology at Dirupati and mm. we're working with them now. Okay. And and um, interesting. That's, that's where that, that connection goes uh, in terms of using your network to help you develop the, mm -hmm. the technologies. Um. And and you said you're getting to the stage now where you're going to be raising a seed round. Um, how are you thinking about that? So this is a big question. I'm always looking for advice. So we can raise $750,000 to prove out our scale up mm -hmm. and optimize our prototype. Or we can raise $3.5 million and actually set up our own manufacturing mm -hmm. rather than third party it out. And that'll really set us up for success, but it is a bigger risk for investors. We would have to give up more of the company. But I, right now, I'm equally open to both avenues, and I'm constantly exploring which one will be better mm. for a company long term. Okay, and, and so you're, you're looking for someone. You're still looking for people to help advise you on like the finance strategy. Mm -hmm. And we're side. talking to various yeah. like uh, seed funds or yeah. VCs, and just. Informally, I'm not asking yeah. any of them for money yet, but just gathering what they're looking to fund and trying to figure out what will be the best fit in terms of what type of fund to partner yeah. with. It's funny how much it's like uh, your your funding strategy depends on the times as well. Like if it was two years ago, mm -hmm. the straight answer would have been raise bigger money, yes. <laughs> go vertical, vertically integrated. That's that's what uh, you know. That's how you make sure you capture all the value and build mm -hmm. those barriers. And now we're kind of in a place where it feels like there's a little lull in, in financing or exactly. there's more demand for capital efficiency. And so mm -hmm. I could see why you'd say, okay, no, we got to, we got to do the, the, the capital efficient and steady, mm -hmm. um, where, where maybe you're not investing in CapEx, but you're really able to grow as, as you're able to, to prove out more of the market. And mm -hmm. that's, that has everything to do with we're here today in 2023 and not, yep. not 2021. Um, and I think that maybe the hardest thing for, People haven't gone through it, that fundraising process, and, and people who are not entrepreneurs, the thing that's hard to understand is it really is, um, it feels like a crapshoot sometimes mm -hmm. where it's like, we got to make this guess, we, we have to make this um, the strategy once, and yes. we got to go out to market and test it, and mm -hmm. we can totally be wrong. Yeah. Um, but we got to we gotta put our best foot forward, and it's, um, it's, it's I don't want to say agonizing, but it, it creates a lot of anxiety mm -hmm. to understand that you're, you know, you're, you're taking only so many shots on net to... To try and finance this the most efficient way you can. Right. 
Um, but it's such a, a dynamic situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it really depends who you talk to because two really great advisors that I have are my father and mm-hmm. my husband who are both who I consider successful business people. And my, my dad is a lot more conservative and he's a technologist mm-hmm. at the core, even though he has run businesses. He just believes in let's just get the technology going. My husband, he is a former journalist, mm. ended up starting his own business in vertical farming and in 2021, like you <laughs> said, raised $50 million. And he's like, go big, go for the bigger <laughs> money. It's out there. You just have to find them. It's out there. Yeah. Go get the big money. Yeah. So it's like both people who I really admire and consider great advisors. It just depends who you talk to and which strategy may end up working. They could both work, but mm. you need to choose one. Yep. Yeah, and and uh, and that's the key is you have to choose one and really execute against it. Yep. Yeah. Are, are, uh, how do you feel about it? Is it like, uh, do you have anxiety about, because uh, this will be your first time raising private mm-hmm. capital. Yeah. Uh, or do you feel like you're prepared? Um, I'm feeling more and more prepared okay. kind of every day. If you asked me six months ago when I was still had the cushion of the DOE grant, I was like, not even not even remotely prepared but the program the um the program chain reaction innovation mm. really got us prepared and they put us in front of a lot of innovators and then here in houston i did the rice mm. clean energy accelerator which also put us in front of a lot of investors that also got me prepared so day by day getting a little bit more and more comfortable yeah and and what is the preparation uh, in your mind um preparing the materials so there's mm. We have two different financial models. One is if we raise a 750, mm. where does it get us? The other is if we raise a 3.5, and they both have compelling stories. And two is just practicing mm. telling that story. And obviously, I really believe in it, but the way I deliver it, it lands differently with different audiences. Um, and there's different kinds of investors. Some yeah. of them, they really care about the story and your passion, and others just want to see the EBITDA. Yep. <laughs> what is it going to get us? So finding, so before I used to be really nervous talking to any investor who was starting to feel like oh, they only care about the money, but now I'm not so mm-hmm. nervous about that because I realized that's not the right investor for me at this stage anyway. Yeah. So if it doesn't work out with them, that's totally okay. There's others. Yeah. And, and that, I think that's the the thing about practice is mm-hmm. uh, you get that chance to like fall on your face a little bit and, yeah. and, and realize it's okay. There will always be other investors to mm-hmm. talk to. I, I do remember that um, from the first time I was raising capital, I thought every conversation was the most important. Yeah. And then you're like, wait a minute, this is okay. Like we're, we're going to go through a process. We're going to find an investor that's right for us. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's okay if that one conversation doesn't work out. Um, do you feel like... Uh, uh, when you think about um, kind of the future of the business, what are the big roadblocks that you're trying to overcome that, that you'd use the money to overcome? Um, so right now our team is mostly scientists mm-hmm. and engineers. So hiring the right supply chain person, the right plant manager to mm-hmm. kind of manage a larger production facility, the right marketing people, mm-hmm. and a finance person full-time. Because although I have my MBA, I do not want to be in charge of the financial models forever (laughs) so building out the right team is a challenge but one that i look forward to doing once we have the funding but Mm. the biggest obstacle in my opinion is still convincing our potential customers or technology partners that the super cap 
is what they need mm. to advance their technology. Mm. And it will require some investment and integration will take time. But if they really want to move the needle in energy storage, especially as our world transitions to mm. clean energy, they have to invest in it. So that's an obstacle that's like every day I'm working on. Yeah. I was uh, speaking with another entrepreneur last week. And um, she also has an investor who really just wants to focus on technology development. And uh, when you think about like a technology that's deep as this, it takes kind of years of demand development right. to really um, create the orders that show up at the end. But you need um, you need a team kind of out there saying, um, this is why we need to invest in this technology. And these are all the other things you got to change around it. Mm -hmm. and, and because deep tech can't move on a dime like you really have to invest early and often yeah and and it's not just marketing it's like technical education right you got to go to the conferences you got to put out the papers mm -hmm. um and it feels like it's a hard thing for to invest in because it's it's so long tail in terms of when you see the the, the positive indications but i think any you know th those investors who really understand hard tech and really understand the need to to show the market the way um you know, those are the right folks to be investing in things like hydrogen and mm -hmm. and, and, and things like this. Um, and it, it's funny how um, some people just get so focused on like, let's let's build the thing. Yeah. Um, so I, I applaud your recognition that like we need to, you know, develop that marketing within the market. Um, when you think about um, things you've you've done in the past, are there any um, failures or mistakes you made um, that, that you learned from? Yeah, um, when we first discovered our process to produce the graphene material, as scientists, we were so excited because mm -hmm. we made this um, like wonder material that had all these cool properties that could do so many things. And we tried to go out to the market with that raw material. But there was so much noise mm -hmm. in that raw material market. People were marketing activated carbon as graphene they were marketing carbon black as graphene and it was so difficult for us as a small startup mm -hmm. that did not have the brand recognition to be able to sell our raw material mm -hmm. and that was one piece of it but the second piece was if there were companies who were willing to take a chance and buy samples of our product we would ship it out and then we would follow up with them and say, how did the material work in your application? They're like, oh, it didn't work. And we'd ask them, well, what'd you do? And they were very cagey on their process mm -hmm. of how they incorporated the material into whatever their product was. But a few of them, like if I dug enough, they were like, well, we added this many grams of material to this solution and then it didn't, it just agglomerated or whatever. Thing with graphene is less is more mm. so people were adding like grams of this material to their solutions when really you need like 0.1 grams mm -hmm. for the amount of solution they had but it was it was a learning curve for them they didn't understand that and they said well we've kind of blown our our budget for mm -hmm. that research project so mm -hmm. we'll get back to you if we end up opening that up again so we realized it was going to be impossible to be a raw material supplier for this very new material that people did not know how to work mm -hmm. with. And it was it was a good thing in the end because it really pushed us to develop the product applications. So one was the water filtration mm -hmm. device using mm -hmm. the graphene, mm -hmm. and two is the super cap that I'm really excited about the yeah. super cap <laughs> and the performance. And so it pushed us to that and it was it felt like 
failure after failure when mm. each company we sent a sample to was like, oh, is your material's not working, your mm. material's not working. But we had done all the characterization on our material and we we're like, but it has the properties to work. Yeah. Um, do, do you think that's because the reality is, is you're the expert on the graphene and they weren't? Yes. And the problem with these larger companies are their R&D departments, even with the NDAs, they're very secretive. Mm. They will not work with you mm. on integrating this material into their things and like even the paint company they were like we are formulation experts we got it thank you for your material good day mm. um but because i made a friend within that organization mm -hmm. he did share some of the things that they did wrong and he's like i'm still gonna try to push them to do it the right way once we get more funding for this project yeah do you think that's um uh because they are like what are you going to do as a little startup you're going to steal their process right right is, mm -hmm. is it just that it's an old way of doing business i think so yeah and i think um especially with something new it you know it, it requires a lot of change in the way like the system works mm -hmm. and they really need to engage like more in a consultative yep. arrangement right mm -hmm. and um Ultimately, they need to hire you to show them, like, this is how this works and, mm -hmm. and be very clear about the the IP ownership. Yep. Um, do, do you think they just didn't know to, to think about the new technology that way? Or do you think um, uh, that's just a challenge with new technology development? Um, I think it's both. So I think there was a lot of fear within these companies. Mm -hmm. Like, let's say Sherwin-Williams would be afraid that they would tell us how they formulated mm. their mixture and then we would take it to what's it called Benjamin Moore or okay. someone. So there was a lot of competition within those companies and that's what was keeping them from sharing more with us just because they didn't want it to get out to anyone else. Mm. And it turns out there was another, another large paint company who they gathered a lot of information from us and then didn't actually pursue the project. Mm. And several months later, I see they put out a patent on the formulation. Mm -hmm. So, but they have no intentions of actually making a graphene-based paint. They just wanted to put the patent out so no one else could do it. Mm -hmm. So that was some another dynamic going on that we yeah. have no control yeah, over. No, no, no ability and, and uh, yeah, no control over it. Um, well, that's curious. <laughs> I, I have so many questions, but I really have so much time. Um, and in terms of uh, kind of your your journey here in Houston, um, yeah, you shared a little at the beginning about uh, why you came here. You did the Rice uh, Clean Energy Accelerator. Um, tell us a little bit about your your um, engagement with the ecosystem here outside of that. Yeah, so I was super impressed by all the events that the Ion had mm -hmm. going on and how they're able to bring in all these oil and gas companies who quite frankly, don't have a choice but to participate in the energy transition, mm. but it's really cool to have access to them and hear about all of the efforts they're making and their kind of incubator type mm. organizations they have within their larger corporation. It was at, uh, like being from North Carolina, we didn't have that. So mm. it's really cool to have that exposure. And I think Houston is definitely at the forefront of the energy transition. So I'm really glad that even though it was my husband's job that brought me here, that I was able to tap into that and do the accelerator and meet all these mm -hmm. people. Yeah. 
Do you, uh, do you feel like you're going to raise capital here in Houston or, or, or is it going to be elsewhere? Um, it might be. So we were talking a few investment groups out of Houston that I met through the accelerator, but it could be we're also talking to some from Illinois. Mm. It could be someone from completely New York that we're also talking to. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think uh, earlier you mentioned you're going back to North Carolina. Um, mm -hmm. What's drawing you back there? So the Research Triangle Park and the research institutes there is definitely a big draw, but it's also just family. That's mm -hmm. where my family is. So yeah, it's uh, we've had a few entrepreneurs here in Houston um, go back go back to the Research Triangle area and, and in material technologies, mm -hmm. uh, more on the plastic side. Mm -hmm. But it's uh, there's definitely a um, know how or I guess uh, expertise in that area. Yep, um, that's a little different than than what we have here in Houston. Um, are there any hidden gems in the Houston ecosystem that you really think should we should share with people? Um, I think the ION is amazing. Greentown yeah. Labs, I would have loved to be a part of that, but because I was only here part-time, mm -hmm. it didn't really make sense for me to be a part of Greentown Labs full-time, mm -hmm. but I think it's an amazing resource to people who are entrepreneurs who are here in Houston. Yeah. Um, on your own journey here, what, what are some gaps that you, you found in the ecosystem? Um, so even within the Rice Clean Energy mm -hmm. Accelerator, there's there's a couple of professors at Rice University who are very renowned for their graphene research. So there was a need for a bridge connecting us to those professors through mm -hmm. the university and through the accelerator that I didn't really see. Mm -hmm. But that's not unique to Houston. It's also a little difficult to do that. Like at NC State, there's amazing engineering professors and researchers there's not really that bridge between industry and academia yet mm. okay and and i think that's a that is a challenge that that people recognize in houston um and, and i know there are a couple of groups working on that and, and i think rice has been um kind of on the vanguard of trying to push that as well as um i think uh university of houston as mm. well so it's um it, it takes time to change things yeah. like that um, I, I think, um, you know, Houston's a very international city. Um, do you find it, it it's international? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and uh, one of the things that um, we've been uh, talking through with a few of our other guests is, um, you know, their background being international people. Um, and uh, you're one of our, our guests who is, uh, you know, female founder, female founder of color, and you choose to wear hijab. Do, do you find... Um, that you uh, you must have a different experience than other entrepreneurs who go through the system. But what are your observations about how of your 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 identity um, maybe influences your journey here in Houston? Yeah, so I used to be a lot more intimidated mm -hmm. by the way mm -hmm. just because I look different, especially when I go to technology conferences and I was the only woman. Mm -hmm. I was the only woman of color, and I was the only person with a hijab at the conference period. But not just at the conference, on the stage being mm. a speaker. Um, but I got over that because I realized once I start talking mm. about the technology, technology kind of speaks for itself and it's mm. very exciting to people and it doesn't really matter how you look. And if it matters to someone how you look, it's not someone you want to work with anyway. Mm. So I've really gotten over that. And I, through the Houston ecosystem and the accelerator and the different events that I attended at ION, I didn't feel any of the intimidation mm. anymore. And it's likely because the innovation entrepreneurship community 
is much more open-minded and awesome, but also Houston is so diverse mm. that it was not, it was a non-issue. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you think um, part of that is because Houston has so many international people that we're, we're just used to people being different? Um, I don't know. Yeah, I think that's definitely a part of it. And that being said, mm -hmm. there was a, one VC group that I talked to as part of one of the events at the ION. And there's always going to be people who treat you differently. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's because I was a woman or because I was wearing a job, but the VC ended up mansplaining to me the difference oh, no. between a safe and a convertible <laughs> note. And yeah. he told me to Google it. And I was... I mean, there's a part of me that wanted to be like, I went to Fuqua's business school and I've been working on my business for this. I don't need this. But I've learned that that's not a VC I'm going to work with anyway. Mm. I'm just going to spend the rest of the five minutes in this. It was like a speed dating kind of yep. VC thing. I was just going to indulge him for the next five minutes and never talk to him again. Yeah, I know. I, that might be, a, that's definitely a mansplaining thing. <laughs> I, was, um, I forget where it was. It was in the middle of COVID, like 2020 or something. And Juliana and I, Juliana Greiser, was his, who uh, helped launch Greentown Houston with me, we went to some uh, investing event, and, and she had previously run the Houston Angel Network. She's an active investor. And we got on a panel, and this, uh, this male investor like, got up, and it was, it was the same thing, having, like, explaining to her the difference between a safe note <laughs> and a convertible note. I'm just going, man, he's embarrassing himself because right. <laughs> this woman is like the face of angel investing in, in Houston. Um, she doesn't need to be explained to, yeah. uh, but it, it's it. it uh, I, I don't know if I've been on the receiving end, so it's it's hard for me to relate. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but uh, it's it's good to recognize that like you can just move on. Yeah, right. So, um, do you think? Uh, so I'm curious, just because I'm curious about people. Um, uh, tell me about your uh, your choice to wear a hijab, and um, it obviously comes from a place of faith. Mm -hmm. Um, how has that been uh, important to you in terms of, uh, of being an entrepreneur? Yeah, so I started wearing hijab very young mm -hmm. before anyone in my family wore it for my mom mm -hmm. or any of my aunt, older cousins mm -hmm. wore it. And it was because I had this Quran teacher mm -hmm. who had explained to us in very subtle ways kind of the history of our prophet and mm -hmm. his wife during the lives over time and the protection that the hijab provided mm. them. And I was only in the fourth grade and I was like, I want to do that. I want to be protected mm -hmm. by the hijab. And as a kid, you don't really understand the full gravity of it. And mm -hmm. it wasn't until like later in life, like high school and college where I really did feel like it was part of my identity and it did protect me from a lot of things that I saw my peers mm -hmm. having to deal with. Like just, the modesty that it brings mm -hmm. it it shoes away a lot of unwanted attention mm -hmm. lets you focus on things that are more important that prided me with that safety and then it's not easy mm -hmm. it's not mm -hmm. easy wearing a hijab it's not easy going through tsa even though i've been on tsa <laughs> mm -hmm. pre-check for as long as i can remember mm -hmm. i still get randomly selected it builds so much character over time. And as an entrepreneur, you need to have thick skin. So I do think yeah. it's really helped me in that way as well. Mm -hmm. And many years after I started wearing a hijab, my mom decided to wear it <laughs> and my sisters. And so we have a really awesome community. My friends wear it. And I've seen a lot of friends 
end up taking it off like post 9-11 when it was just mm. too hard. And mm-hmm. There's so much negativity. And that's totally, I support their choice. But I think I get a lot of strength from it. So I continue to wear it. Yeah, I mean, and that's part of it is is like is committing to the practice in spite of the challenges and, exactly. and, and also appreciating like the strengths it gives you, yep. right? And, and and I definitely appreciate that. And I, I think that's a, a strong cornerstone of like a really powerful faith. So mm-hmm. I, I appreciate that um, you. You, you do it with pride. Thank you. So um, so as we uh, start to uh, wrap here, um, you're planning uh, to uh, start raising capital. You're looking for advisors to help you think through these financing options in front of you. Are there other things that you're you're thinking about or the audience could help you and support you and your goals? Um, funding is definitely number one, mm-hmm. but two, cannot put enough emphasis on building out my team. So mm-hmm. as we start our search for a CFO mm-hmm. and like an operations person, anyone interested in climate tech mm-hmm. and new technology, we are looking to grow our team. If Good. this is something interesting to them, we'd love to talk. Yeah. Would they be um, remote or would they have to be in North Carolina with you? No, they could be remote. Okay, good. Um, and if they want to reach out to you, where should they find you? LinkedIn would be the best place. Okay, and I'll put the LinkedIn right in the show notes. Um, do you have any parting thoughts before we wrap? Um, no, this is really awesome. And I know my time in Houston is wrapping mm. up, but this was great to be here. And I definitely know I will be back in Houston to participate in the many energy transition type events they have here. Good. Well, thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's show. You can learn more about this company on DW Insights, a marketplace for energy technologies. On the platform, you can access early new episodes and content, and you can also discover exciting technologies. If you like the show, share it with a friend or give us a review on your podcast platform. Lastly, if you have an entrepreneur in Houston that you'd like to hear more about, Let us know and we'll try to bring them in. See you next week on Energy Tech Startups.